Having said that, turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're getting into a new chapter today. We've got three more churches to move through. We're going to be uh, speaking this morning concerning God's word, the words of Jesus Christ himself to the church in Sardis. I was talking with Pastor Jeremy this morning, and he said the first church his dad ever became the pastor of in East Georgia was the Sardis Baptist Church. And we just laugh, because who would name their church after this church? It's a terrible name. Terrible name. So we're going to read all six verses, uh, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll get started. Chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that we have not gathered at a social event. We are not at a clubhouse. We do not pay membership dues to use the resources of this place. Father, we come today gathered together as your people, not to hear a speech, not just to sing songs, but to worship you and to hear from you. I thank you this morning that your name has been worshipped this morning. Father, I ask now that you would speak to your people through your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. amen. Real quick recap. You know, some people get mad at us. We had some people leave the church when we were going through Romans because they said we should be in Romans longer. They wanted us to stay in Romans for like 10 years. And I get that, right? Uh, and there's a place for that. But 30,000 foot views when we gather together like this is super important. And I don't want you to forget. So by the time we got to the end of Romans, like 40 weeks later, we had already forgotten what the beginning of Romans said, right? So 30,000 foot view is what I want to remind you of this morning before we dig into these six verses. The Lord Jesus has revealed himself in his glory, in his splendor to John, who is exiled in a place called Patmos. He was burned in oil. They tried to kill him. He didn't die. So they said, let's get rid of this guy. They exiled him away. And that's where Jesus revealed himself to John, the beloved disciple. And John writes down that revelation. And God has specific things to say to 
seven churches. These are real historic churches, but the number seven reveals to us that this is God's word, his whole and complete word to his church eternal, his people that are still today gathering in his name. Yes, it's for these seven churches, but it's also the words of Christ to us today. And I I want you to remember now that we're in SARS. We've got two churches left. Philadelphia and Laodicea are, are coming in the next several weeks. But remember what God has already said. And isn't it amazing? You know, there's no such thing. Now, some of you, by God's grace, you think we finally have created the perfect church. I can promise you, we haven't. (laughs) There is no church that is perfect. The good news is God speaks to his churches, calling them in. You know, I said some, some, some things about old Smiley last week. I always make people mad when I do that. And and here's the reality. My dad knows them. We know people in that church. God even uses churches that aren't really churches. (laughs) It's kind of a backhanded compliment, I guess. But the reality is God uses weak churches. God uses churches that aren't churches. God uses even heretical uh, churches. People are getting saved even in churches we don't think are above board. Because God's good, amen? So, so we should speak out against things that aren't true, but at the same time, we got to understand God is doing his work in the lives of people, and people are even getting saved at churches that aren't really churches, and by God's grace, he will grow them and mature them, and they'll end up somewhere like four points. Eventually, I started out in a church like that. How many of you, raise your hand, how many of you started out in a bad church? Amen, God's good, Right? And, and we, we've not, we're, we're not there yet. God's still working on us here. We want to get better. That's what this is for. God speaks to the church in Ephesus. It's a loveless church. They've got all the knowledge in the world, but they've lost the, the true proper motivation for their knowledge and for their hands. They're doing good works in Ephesus out of a right understanding of the gospel, but they've lost their love for God. So, so God speaks to the loveless church and says, come back to me. Remember me. Just like the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel after they had betrayed God and left God and followed their own devices. God says through Jeremiah, as a bride, I remember as a bride how you loved me. See the height from which you have fallen. Return to me. That's God's word to the church in Ephesus. It's, a lo- it's lost its heart. God then speaks to Smyrna, which is a persecuted church. We, in this time, generation, and place in which we live, we don't know persecution like Smyrna knew. But God has a, a word for Smyrna. Be faithful unto death. They hated me. Of course they're going to hate you. Don't don't think it's uh, crazy what you're experiencing. It's all part of my plan. There's a loveless church. There's a persecuted church that God encourages and edifies. Then we got to Pergamum, a compromised church, a worldly church. The church on the inside looked just like the culture on the outside. And then we talked about Thyatira last week, the tolerant church. 
the church that Kim Kardashian spoke at on a weekly basis. That woman Jezebel. I don't know anything about the Kardashians. I know they've got a show. It's a big deal. Uh, all I know is on my news feed, every now and again, every couple days, there's a story about the Kardashians, and they never are fully clothed. <laughs> I've just never seen them with a full set of clothes on. That's what's happening in Thyatira. Jezebel is there proclaiming, selling sexuality. And many in the church are buying in, and the leaders aren't doing anything about it. Listen to me. For church leadership, but for parents as well. You're not being a friend to your... You're certainly not being a parent, but you're not even being a friend to tolerate the things the world is selling to our children. It is the spirit of Jezebel, and we have to be vigilant, and we have to protect this is the message of Jesus to the church at Thyatira. You can't let nonsense go rampant. You've got to stop it at the gate. You can't let it in. And now we find ourselves, Jesus speaking to a dying church. And to the angel of the church in Sardis. Let's talk about Sardis for just a moment. Because like all the cities, there, there, there's a reason Sardis is a city. Uh, its golden age was about 600 years before the book of Revelation uh, was written. It came to prominence, not because of some great harbor. You know, it, wasn't, it didn't have the trade guilds headquartered uh, there in Sardis. No, it became a city because of natural resources. Don't let anyone fool you. Uh, there's a reason the lower 48 bought places like Alaska. We bought it for its natural resource. God gave creation to Adam and Eve and told them to have dominion over it. It is an incredibly arrogant idea to think that we can somehow exhaust the world that God has given us. Natural resources are important we should drill, but that's not for here. <laughs> we should use the resources God has given us. Sardis is a city that has come to influence because of its natural resources. The gold deposits in the river around Sardis put Sardis on the map. And they had a king named Croesus. And there was actually a saying in the ancient world, to be as rich as Croesus. That's how, this was the Elon Musk of the day. If he didn't like Twitter, he can just go out and buy it and change it. Right? So there's an incredibly wealthy city. Again, not because of trade or anything, just because of the natural resources is how it became wealthy. Plus, it had geographic boundaries that, that made it a city that was known as the impregnable city. It was built. The entire city was on a mount. Surrounded on three sides by 15. It was a walled city. So on top of this mount, they built walls around the entire city. But on three of its sides, it had 1,500 foot steep cliffs. There was only one way into this city and one way out. They didn't think it would ever 
be invaded. It couldn't be invaded. It couldn't be conquered because of the natural boundaries around the city. One other thing about Sardis you need to know that Jesus picks up on and speaks into her context well. The city was known for her necropolis. Now that's a fancy Greek word that means city of the dead. It was known for its amazing. There was one part of the city with all these hills. They called it uh, uh, the land of a thousand hills. And, and on these hills, they built their necropolis, their graveyard, their cemetery, ornate, decorated monastery. The skyline in this one part of the city was nothing but, but uh, monasteries and decorated graves. People in the city thought this is a great place to live. And it's a beautiful place to die. But God doesn't want death for his people. He doesn't want his church to die. So he's calling to them in a context they can understand and, and speaking and breathing life back into them. This is Sardis. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now remember in chapter 1 we get this, Jesus fully reveals himself in all his splendor, in all his glory. And every singular church he writes to gets one little snippet of who he is at the beginning of their letter. Jesus is reminding the church in Sardis that he holds the seven spirits of God. Remember, Jesus to his disciples in the gospel, he said, it's good that I go away. Now, why would it be good for Jesus to go away? Because it was Jesus. We talk a lot about the, the incarnation, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But we don't talk much about the ascension and where Jesus is now. It's called the session of Christ. He, it was good for him to, to go. Because now he is at the right hand of the Father. And together the Father and the Son send the Spirit, the paraclete, the helper, the comforter to God's people. It is the Holy Spirit of God, the whole complete work of God's Spirit that Jesus and the Father send that is at work in us. This same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. It's the Holy Spirit that is the oil that makes the lamp, the church, burn. And we should be through the power of God's spirit, the burning one shining the light of the gospel to all those around us. It is God who has, and Jesus who has sent the Holy Spirit, the complete work of the Holy Spirit. If you want a more technical definition of uh, the seven responsibilities the Holy Spirit carries at work of the church, you can go to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. Just write that in your notes. So not only is it Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit to the church causing it to burn, but he also has the seven stars. We know from Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 exactly what those stars represent, the angels, the supernatural powers that, that God has put in place to protect the church and cause the church to grow, as well as the, the human leaders that, that God has put in place to speak his word into the church. Both are ordained by God in the heavens and on the earth. God knows exactly what is happening at all times. And he knows exactly what to speak to his church to, to rouse them back to vigilant faith that we should have. It's easy. It's easy to become complacent. 
God always, just like we do with our kids, always rouses us back to vigilance, reminds us why the breath is in our bodies that he has put there. There's a purpose and a reason. We're not just coming from nowhere, uh, coming from nothing and going nowhere. No, we come from something, someone, and we're going somewhere. There is purpose in life. There is purpose in the good, the bad, and the ugly, according to Clint Eastwood, right? There's good in the pain. There's purpose in the pain. There's purpose in the success. God has a plan and a purpose. He's in control and he's in charge and he rouses his people to vigilance. We should be a vigilant people. Still in verse 1, I know your works. Now we've seen this before and we're going to see it again. We didn't see it in Smyrna. We didn't see it in uh, Pergamum. But we're going to see it in Philadelphia next week. We're going to see it uh, on the 1st of January in Laodicea. But we've seen it in Ephesus. Go to, go to chapter 2, verse 2 really quick. I know your works, God says to Ephesus. And then he, has a, a com- he begins with a commendation of all the things they're doing well before he gets to the negative. Your toil, your patient endurance, you bear with those that are evil. But we know later on they're a loveless church. They've lost their heart. Look at uh, the church in Thyatira, verse 19 of chapter 2. I know your works. And then he gets into the commendation. Your love and faith and service, your patient endurance, your works are even better now than they were at the beginning. Ah, but you let that Jezebel in. Right, there's a commendation first. Well, God now surveys the works of the church in Sardis. And notice there is no commendation that comes after. He gets straight in to his judgment against the church. And we should be paying attention to what pleases the Lord. And we should also be paying attention to what doesn't please the Lord. Amen? We want to be the church that that sees the flaws of these seven churches in us so that we can change them and we can do more of what pleases the Lord and less of what displeases him. Now, by the way, the second week of January, we're going to start our vision series for this next year. Every January, we take four weeks and go through our disciple-making process. You know what a a fun little exercise is? Ask your friends, ask your kids, ask your family... What is a church? See what they say. Most people can't give you a good biblical definition. What are churches supposed to do? They're supposed to make disciples. Ask friends, family, kids, what does it mean to make a disciple? Most people can't give you a clear biblical definition of what making a disciple is. Every January, we open God's word and we remind you what a church is and how a church is to make disciples. And much of that is taken from these seven churches in Revelation. What they do wrong, we don't want to do. What they do right, we want to emulate. We want to build more. The church in Ephesus has no heart. They've got head and hands, but no heart. So we want love. We want to proclaim the gospel. We want, we want people to see the grace of God so they will love him as a deer pants for water. They will long for him. The, the proper motivation of all we do is built on love for God and what he's done. Got to Thyatira. They've got hands too. 
and they've got heart, they've got love, but they don't have head. They don't, they, they no longer uh, agree with orthodox, sound doctrine. They tolerate it and let other things in. Can't do that either. Sardis' problem is their hands are not engaged. They've got head, they've got heart, but they don't have hands. It takes all three, and in our discipleship process, I hope to clearly lay out for you why all three are important in our following Jesus Christ, of being Christians, little Christ, emulating and honoring and reflecting his glory in this world. It's not just head. Those guys are jerks. It's not just heart. Those guys are squishy, and they allow too much sin. And it's not just hands. You can do a lot of the right things for the wrong reasons. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? What did Jesus? He blisters the Pharisees. Why? They're doing the right things. They're praying, but they're praying for the wrong reasons. They're fasting. They're giving alms to the poor, but they're doing it all for the wrong reasons to be seen. So people will glory in them, not in the God they say they love, serve, and honor. It's great to have hands on a plow. But it's got to be matched with the right heart and the right head, centered, all three on the gospel. Jesus says, I know your works, Sardis, and they're not good. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, what is, everybody in here could probably give me a good definition of reputation, it's what other people think about a person or an organization. I got some books on Amazon this week saying, guess what? There are people who write, I think their only job in the world is to write comments. I don't know where they get all their time. But right? We, we are all building a reputation. Our businesses are building a reputation within the community. Reputation is what other people think about you. And this church in Sardis has a great reputation. They've been around for a long time. Their website, mwah, el magnifique. You didn't know I was French. La magnifique. It doesn't matter. <laughs> They've got a full budget. They've got a full program of ministries. All the other churches are looking at Sardis and saying, man, if we could just get to where Sardis is at. They've got a great reputation. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. What matters is what God thinks. What matters is what God sees. And he sees through the charade, the charade. He sees through the, uh, uh, the, 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 the tents we make for ourselves, the, the presentations that we give off to other people. He sees through Sunday best. And he sees the lack of fire in the hearts of his people. This church has got everything going for it. You know, I talked bad about a preacher last week. Let me talk good about a preacher this week. And some of you won't like this guy. And there's reasons to not like him. But, but I'll never forget when Pierce Morgan interviewed a, guy, a little Baptist preacher named Rick Warren. You may have heard of him. Purpose Driven Life. Second 
uh, second greatest book behind the Bible in terms of copies sold. Isn't that crazy? It's been translated into dozens of languages. So there's the Bible, there's purpose-driven life, but not in theological terms. That's just, that's just the way it is in the, in the world we live in. But unlike Smiley, I talked about last week, Rick Warren answered a question really well to Pierce Morgan. Because Pierce Morgan, you know, Rick Warren does, his church does all kinds of work with the LGBT community, AIDS research, really loves that community well, while at the same time not agreeing with them. And Pierce Moore was like, you do all this work, you care about this community. Uh, do you ever think there is a time where the church will accept homosexuality uh, as, you know, right for marriage, right for... And Rick Warren looked at Pierce Morgan in the face and said, no. And then he said what every uh, page of Scripture screams. Because we're not doing all this work for man's opinion, what we care about. The church can never accept homosexuality because we care more about what God says than what people think. And for once, I could say amen to a Rick Warren sermon. What God says matters. And these people look alive. This church looks alive. But Jesus says, you're dead. You got a lot of stuff going on. But on the inside, you're, you're, you're laid back in your lazy boy recliner. And you're just, you're living off a reputation that is not real anymore. He moves on and he says, verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. It's not too When God speaks to us, the sheer fact that he speaks to us is the realization that it's not too late. Right? We, may we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit as we study God's word this morning. Not looking out there at other churches, but looking at ourselves. Because isn't it easy to just not care and become complacent. Look, I'm 47 years old. When I moved here 15 years ago, I was a... You might still think I'm a fire-breathing man, but I'm not near as fire-breathing as I was 15 years ago. To be 47 years old, you lose some things as you age. You lose innocence. You lose naivety. And you can, you can leak out a lot of passion as you come into, into middle age. Been there, done that. Nothing really stirs you as much as it used to stir you. This is who Jesus is talking to. You got this reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Look what he says. Straight away is about to die. For I have not found works complete in the sight. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Here's what Jesus says. And a, a more literal translation of this is, nothing you do pleases me. Man, that's a hard word from the Lord. Wake up. Nothing. You're doing a lot of stuff, but nothing you're doing is pleasing to me. Reputation. You know, we got a lot of reputation in our country. There is a church on every corner 
of every city in our country. Did you know if you walk up halfway the Statue of Liberty, if, you, if you're crazy enough to climb all those stairs, you know what you're going to find halfway up? Bible verses etched into, the, etched into the side of her on the inside. And all our founding documents, it's littered with Scripture. Got a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Nothing you do pleases me. Wake up! Be vigilant once more. Care about everything happening around you. Speak the truth that needs to be spoken from head, from heart, and let it engage your hands as well. It's not time to sit back in the lazy boy. The day of complacency is over. Wake up. You know, not all Christian music is good. Just so you know. But there's a lot of Christian music that is good. A couple, couple people that I listen to a lot. I love some Andre Crouch. Oh, I was listening to Andre Crouch last night. Sarah actually took a video of me because I was crying as I was listening to Through It All. And you can't find him on iTunes. you got to like go to YouTube to find old videos. I, I love the, that, that prophetic voice of some of these old musicians like Rich Mullins is another one of my favorite. But Keith Green sang a song called Asleep in the Light. And the course of that song says, the church is sleeping in the, or the world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? This is the message Jesus is speaking into the church of Sardis. Get out of the lazy boy. Remember why I put breath in your body. Remember the purpose that I have placed upon you as my people. And get back to work, head engaged, heart engaged, and hands engaged in the gospel. Wake up. Rise, O oh sleeper. Wake up from your slothfulness. This isn't just here. It's throughout Scripture. We have purpose in Christ Jesus. So how? How do we wake up? Nothing, nothing this church is doing is pleasing the Lord. How do we wake up? Verse 3, remember. Verse 3 doesn't start. Begin something new. Start a nonprofit. Over a million get started every year. All they do is rape the church, take her job. No, what is the command? How do we wake up? How do we stir back to vigilance? Remember, there is nothing new. Solomon said it best. There's nothing new under the sun. We don't need something new. We don't need a new diet. We don't need new clothes. We don't need a new car. We don't need a new ministry. What we need is to remember what has been done on our behalf. Remember what you've received and heard. The gospel is, 
is something that must be spoken. You've got to hear it so that you can believe in the work of Christ. It's something that happened in history. It's something that's already done, that we've received. We've got to remember it. Paul is known in his 13 letters, 14 if you count Hebrews as I do, for having a ministry of remembrance. Stop with all the new stuff. All that glitters is not gold. Even Led Zeppelin got it right. Remember sound doctrine that you have been presented. God did leave eternity and step into his creation, space and time. He did uh, take on human flesh. He was fully God who became fully man. And he lived the perfect life that you have not. And then he died in your place for your sin, but he didn't stay dead. He conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave by resurrecting on the third day and now sits in session speaking your name to the Father, praying for you so that you can get your head right, your heart right, and your hands right in the gospel. Remember, remember, Remember what you've received. Keep it and repent. And here's the good news. Repentance is real. And there is no Christianity. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you felt convicted by the Spirit of God? If it's been a while, wake up. Every time I open this book... I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit calling me into deeper relationship, calling me into the holiness that comes with Jesus Christ, begging me to throw off the sins that so easily entangle. You should be feeling that every day. All of Christian life, Luther said, is repentance. If you're in a place where you just think you've got it going on, you're not reading the Bible right. Because you're not special and you're not the answer. Jesus is the answer. I'm a terrible singer, but that what a great song. Andre Grouch. Repent. Here's the beautiful thing. Even when something looks dead, when Jesus speaks to it and brings it to repentance, it can be alive again. There's hope. There's always hope as long as there's breath in our bodies, as long as there's breath in our kids' bodies, as long as there's breath in the church of Jesus Christ, there is hope for God bringing us back to life. Israel was, had, had ignored God, turned away from God, put her nose up at God. And God speaks to a prophet named Ezekiel. You can find this story in chapter 37. God takes Ezekiel to this valley of dry bones. If you've ever seen like a Lord of the Rings movie and there's a dragon and there's just a bunch of bones all around it where it's eating everything, that's where, that's where God takes Ezekiel. Just nothing but skeleton remains everywhere. And he asks Ezekiel a question and he says, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel responds, this is exactly the way that I would respond if God spoke to me like this. He was like, God, only you know. <laughs> Why are you asking me? I'm a ding-dong. <laughs> I'm talking to you to learn, not to tell you something. He said, oh, Lord, only you know. 
And God says, speak, prophesy to these bones. Teach them my word. And, and Ezekiel begins to prophesy. He begins to speak the words of God correctly. He begins to declare the oracles of God to these skeletons laying on the ground. And you know what happens? Sinew begins to form. The skeletons begin to come together. Flesh comes on these bones once more. And they stand there at the end of chapter 37. It says they stood there as a mighty army for the Lord. How? Through hearing the word of God. And what does God's word say? Repent of your sin. Wake up. Come back. Remember. We make this way harder than it has to be. It's not our work. It's the work that God has done on our behalf. When we remember the gospel, the precious gospel of Jesus Christ, our heads enlarge in knowledge of the mystery of the gospel. Our hearts are engaged. We, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Do you know you're a sinner? Do you know Christ, Christ, the grace and mercy of God forgives us of our sin? Our hearts are engaged. And it makes our hands, we gladly put them to the plow. Not thinking we're doing any, anything for us, but, but knowing it's what he's called us to do. is why we do what we do. Repent. There is no Christianity without repentance. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And this thief metaphor is not just found here. It's found all throughout Scripture. It's found in the Gospels. Jesus, Jesus himself says it here, but he says it in the Gospels to his disciples, to those listening to him. Paul says it in his writings. John says it in his writings. Uh, Peter says it in his writings. Jesus says, I'm coming. And it's going to be quick. And I'm coming when you don't expect it. Like, if, if you knew the thief was coming, you'd be alert. You'd be aware. You'd be sober-minded. You'd be ready. The virgins waiting to get into the, the bridal feast. Ten of them. Five had lamps with oil. Five had lamps with no oil. They went to go find oil. And that's when the doors opened. Only five got to go in. Because the others weren't ready. Jesus says, I come like a thief in the night. Hold on, church. Be ready. Be alert. Wake up. He is coming back. It looks like all hell has broken loose. The world is upside down. What is evil is being called good and proclaimed good. What is truly good is being called evil and hate speech. But stay alert, stay vigilant. He is coming. I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. You have a reputation for your life, but you're dead. Strengthen what remains. That is almost dead. There's still some. There's always a remnant. God always has a faithful people who have not soiled their garments. In the church today, you know, not everybody in this room is actually a Christian. Well, Brent, the leaders of the church should do something about that. 
Jesus, that's what the disciples thought too. We got we to get out there and we got to separate. Jesus said, let the wheat and the tares grow together. I will separate them at the harvest. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian is. But for those who have not soiled their garments, for those who in a moment we read have conquered four things Jesus gives to those who wake up, to those who are alert, to those who are ready. Jesus says, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. They will walk with me. This takes us all the way back to Genesis. What does God create us for in the first place anyway? God didn't need friends. God wasn't lonely when he created Adam and Eve, when he created time and space, creation as we know it. God has always been fully satisfied in the perfection and goodness of himself, in harmony and relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. He needs nothing. But good wants to share. Perfection has to share itself. So God share. He builds creation. He creates Adam and Eve in his image and in his likeness to share himself with. And the Lord walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. And why did that stop? Sin broke relationship between man and God. There was a dividing wall of hostility built. There was an enmity between God and man because of sin. The wages of sin brings death and separation from the grace of God. But through Christ... Through repentance and faith in what Christ has done, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, that dividing wall of hostility is broken down. There is nothing any longer that separates us from God through Christ Jesus, hand in hand, side by side. We can walk with God again in glorious, perfect relationship. God wants to give himself to you. Wake up, repent, remember the gospel. Walk with the Lord both now in life, in tragedy, in suffering, in sickness, in all the trials of this world. We can walk with God again in the cool of the day, not to speak of eternity being in perfect relationship with him. God loves you. He wants close, thriving relationship with you. If you don't experience that this morning, it is not God's fault. It is yours. Wake up. Stop numbing yourself by binge watching whatever it is you're binge watching. God is here. He is present. He wants relationship. He wants to walk with you. They will, those who conquer, those who repent, remember the gospel. They will walk with me in white. Look at verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Just like in Ephesians chapter 6. Jesus comes, the great victor the mighty warrior who defeats all his enemies, even death itself is his footstool. 
And this victorious armor he wears in Ephesians 6, he gives us. It's not our armor. It's his armor. And it's victorious. It's been victorious in battle. So he gives it to us so that we can wage warfare, not against flesh and blood, but against all the principalities of Satan and his minions who are constantly trying to deceive us and cause us to, to veer off the straight and narrow road that the Lord has placed us on. Just like we have armor to battle in life. Here we find ourselves, we're given a new set of clothes. We're given white garments. To those who conquer, what is conquering? Remembering the gospel, repenting of sin, waking up, coming back to Jesus. We're given something to wear. That's why the Bible says, clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus in Colossians. We need his clothes. What does white symbolize? Holiness, righteousness. It is the very righteousness of God who never did anything wrong. Pilate said, I find nothing wrong with him. Uh, Paul said to the Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is not our righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness that is given to us by Jesus himself. Not only do we get relationship with him for eternity, but we get to be holy even though we're not, through the holiness of Christ. Praise God. Nobody's going to show up in heaven and come near the pearly gates thinking, I deserve to be here. We need help. Jesus is salvation. It's his righteousness that brings us into the presence of a holy God. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, God has assembled. He has spoken and had people deliver this book and preserve this book through history. Very few books are preserved through history. But God supernaturally ordained the preservation of this book so that we could have his words. But God has another book, the book of life. It's throughout scripture. And I was going to, first service, got a bunch of verses I kind of showed throughout. I'm not going to do that here because I've got five minutes. But the reality is we first saw this book in Exodus. We just went through Exodus. Chapter 34, Moses gets so frustrated with the Israelites. He's like, God, just kill me now and wipe my name out of your book. <laughs> God has a record. It's not like a church membership role. Again, your name can be on the church membership, but it may not be in the book of life. God puts names in his book, and he says he never will blot them out. This speaks to the security you have in the saving arms of Jesus Christ. Repentance is something that never stops. Because we are just sin factories, aren't we? But God's grace, it's not us trying to hold on to him. It's he who holds on to us. This is the, the, the uh, salvation of the Lord. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. They're going to remember my words. They're going to repent because the Father has put them in my hands. John chapter 10, memorize the whole chapter. He says... 
and who God puts in my hands. None can snatch them from me. Our names as we remember who Christ is, what Christ has done, as we repent of our sins, believing full well in the salvation that Jesus procures, none can take us from his hands, not even ourselves. This is the eternal security, as some call it. Jesus says, your name will never. I write names in the book. I don't erase them. Praise the name of the Lord. He's good. Brent, you get honorary sometimes. It's because he's good. I need you to know he's good. You can trust him. Don't trust yourself. Repent. Come back to the Lord. Wake up. I will. Think about it. I got two and a half minutes. I will confess his name before my father. Think about this. How many of you have seen The Office and Andy's garden party? Right? He's got Dwight standing there because it's an honor to announce the guests as they come in to the party. I've been introducing. I love these old 20s, 1920s Gilded Age mansions, the Rockefellers and the Banner. I love just seeing how the other half lived, you know? And at their parties, I mean, announcing, it's a very English thing. It's a very uh, proper thing to be announced as you come into a room because you're important enough to be there. People should know your name. When we finally get those in Christ, when we die or at the second coming of our Lord, we are going to have an audience with the Father. We're going to see Yahweh Almighty God. We're going to stand before him and sinners will melt like wax in his presence. All their excuses come to nothing. Every knee bows. Every tongue confesses. Jesus is Lord. But when we get there, those in Christ, when we get there, Jesus himself announces our presence to the Father. We know walking into the throne room of God, we don't belong there. But then we hear the words of our Lord, our Master, our Savior, the one we love, say our name out loud. Jesus says to the Father, this one belongs to us. My blood covers them. And he speaks our name. The glory of that moment knowing we have been saved, we are being saved, but in that future tense moment, we will be saved forever to be with the Father eternally, Father, Son, and Spirit. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, rouse us back to life. Father, may we not look at other churches. May we look at ourselves. May we look in the mirror and hear your word and remember and repent and thank you that dry bones can live again. It is in Jesus' name every Christian said, amen.